Said Podcast. My name is Alexa Dat. Kyle, we finally decided to show up. Thank you, producer Kyle, for being here. It's a longer story than I'd like to get into, so I'm just going to not. He is uh, here joining us, and he's also on mic, which is nice. And we also have a special guest. We have a huge announcement, though, before that, and I wanted to tell everyone on the podcast, because we haven't gotten to this yet, about my new job. And what ended up happening was I was at SNY, and they treated me very well there, and I did a lot of sideline reporting for Mets during spring training, and you guys all saw me out at City Fields, which I'm still doing, actually, until the end of the season, so that answers a lot of questions. But the new role is with 120 Sports, and I am the newest co-host of the morning show called The Morning Run, which originated in Chicago, and they moved it to New York, and they brought over my co-host, Michael Kim. And Michael Kim is our guest today on the podcast. Hi, Michael. Hi, Alexa. Hi. Hello, Kyle. Hi, how's it going? Great. So I'm really excited to be able to tell people about the announcement because we're finally here. We're finally excited to talk about it. And I'm excited for us to get to know each other a little bit more, first of all, because we've only really known each other. We've only worked together for a week Mm -hmm. and we've only really known each other for a couple weeks. Right. And this is the 10th day since I first met you. That's right. So this will be. Am I going to still be uh, your friend, and will you still be my friend <laughs> after this podcast? That is to be determined. That's kind of oh. like that's kind of like the purpose of this whole thing. Really? Right. Oh, okay. So like, well, ideally really? to get you guys we'll really go to good war. friends, but you know, if it goes out another way. I guess <laughs> Has it ever gone the, the other way? I, I understand. I'm the 34th guest. Have any of the first Joe 33? Budden? Joe oh, Budden was Joe Budden went bad. Oh, really? Um, Joe Budden not went with south me, but really with bad. Her. Okay. Yeah, because I would make generalizations and that <laughs> he just did not like. Okay. No, he was very combative. That was actually really fun for me to watch someone just sort of go right after. And them. he would say something about Knicks fans, and I would be like, Knicks fans are like Redskins fans in that. And I would try, be trying to make a parallel, and he would just be like, What are you trying to say? Oh, Knicks fans know. and Redskins fans, don't even put them in the same category. And I was like, Ah! <laughs> Uh, he recently had a little bit of a mental breakdown, though. So, do your uh, we'll listeners here on the him. podcast are they aware that you're not a big Bruce Springsteen fan? I don't know. Have we talked about Bruce Springsteen? No, but this came up on our morning show. I'm not no, I'm, did, you, did you see how I had that preemptive strike? Yeah, yeah just no, in case you know <laughs> you're getting. I'm, I'm kind of like getting the fans behind me. Any fans from the Northeast? I just think he's so overrated. Oh, I actually agree. I'm not a big. I'm not wow. a. Big but you're not the biggest Springsteen fan either, Ken. No, but I'm not. I don't know. I wouldn't go as far as overrated, but I'm not going to be going to 55 concerts like some people on the other side of the glass do. See, I do that. Yeah. I do that with Pearl Jam. I would go That's see. A thing though. I would go see Pearl Jam 55 times in a really? year. Really? I am that big of a fan. I don't but know if I'm a fan of anyone to go. Well, not in a year. I'm just saying. I'll, oh no, I, I'd follow. You would do. I'd follow you them would on do a tour. 55. I would, I would follow them on a tour if I had the. There's funds only 50. But Kyle also has no life, so. Well, they they do they did a double nighter at the garden, so oh. they'll do that at some big venues. Okay. I'd go see them as many times as possible in a year. Wow. He's stuck them. in 1999. Wow! All right, it wasn't a bad time. Anyway, so uh, Kimmer, we're gonna get to know you a little bit better. All right, is that cool? That's fine. All right, fine. I apologize if I got us off on the wrong foot. No, talking I, about Bruce Springsteen. No, I think no, it's I a great foot. Honestly, him. I'm I. Uh, <laughs> I'm very honest on the podcast. Okay, good. And I think listeners have gotten to know me over the course of the 33, now 34 podcasts that All we've right. been doing. And I think that they'll appreciate the fact that I don't appreciate 
Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yeah, and that. Like, or if not, idea. I'll just get tons of hate. Yeah. We also don't really have any semblance of order. Like we come in with a plan every week, and uh -huh. then we just throw it out. Oh, it okay. all goes out. And the by window. we, I mean literally her every time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Well, as the producer, he spends time coming up with stuff. Right, and then it's just gone. Then I'm just yeah. Always against sticking to it. But let's right. get right to it. Okay, so you were born in Columbia, Missouri. I was. And you went to Fulton High School. I did. And you played three sports in Fulton High School. Uh, in high school, I did. I didn't know we were going all the way back to high oh, school. Oh, we're going all the way back. Okay. You love well, to go way, way back. Well, wow, here's the reason. Right. This is why we're going all the way back. Uh-huh. Because Mrs. you were- Mrs. Jennings was my third grade teacher, too. <laughs> I, I Shout out to Mrs. Jennings. Yeah. Whoa. Hopefully, she's still around. Uh, I don't know. Actually, <laughs> we'll check in know. on that. So the reason I'm going all the way back is because you were an athlete. Did you want to get into journalism because you were an athlete and then that's how it transpired? Did you always know that you wanted to be in journalism no matter what? Where did the passion come no. from? Uh, the passion for sports came from, oddly enough, I track it back to my dad, but he wasn't a sports fan. He was a political science professor and he would always read the St. Louis Post-Dispatch every morning. And to be like my dad when I was a little boy, the page, the, the section of the newspaper that he didn't read was the sports page. Oh, wow. So he's reading like the editorials, the front page, what have you, and the sports page is there. And that's what I started reading, to be like him. Right. And I'm reading the St. Louis Cardinals, and I'm reading about all the local teams. At the time, it was the St. Louis Football Cardinals as well as the St. Louis Baseball Cardinals and the St. Louis Cardinals and Missouri Sports. So yeah. that's how I started learning about sports was reading the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and then just following the teams, watching the games on TV, and then playing Little League Baseball and things like that, where all the other kids where I grew up were also St. Louis Cardinals fans. As right, you might right. have heard, you know, that's a pretty big deal in that area of the that's country. That's right, yeah. So um, it, it, that's how it started. Now, as far as the journalism part of the career, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. My dream was to play center field for the St. Louis Cardinals. I was going to say, that so that was the other happen. part of it. Did you think that you yeah. were going to be a professional athlete? No, yeah. I, I wanted, of course. I think a lot of kids uh, growing up, that's what you want to do. And I was fortunate to have some really good coaches in baseball growing up. And in fact, in several other sports. But I had a former major leaguer, a former St. Louis Cardinal outfielder, who was my American Legion and Van Johnson coach. And not that he was ever saying that I could make majors or anything uh -huh. like that but who i just always that? felt like his name is charlie james okay. and a lot of people wouldn't know him unless you're a really diehard baseball fan from the 1960s but his claim to fame was that he was i always say a lot of people obviously know who david freeze is david freeze was a hometown kid in st louis who ended up playing for the st louis cardinals and and winning a world series and being a home run uh hitting that home run in, in game six and being a hero Charlie James also grew up in St. Louis, and he also played for the St. Louis Cardinals. He also won a World Series. Now, he wasn't the star of the team in 1964. He was possibly going to be the star, but when he took over left field for a guy named Stan Musial, mm -hmm. he was the hometown kid. Everybody loved him, and then they went out and traded for Lou Brock, and Lou Brock got the job in left field, and the rest is history. So he followed a Hall of Famer, and then he was, he was the gap between Stan Musial and Lou Brock in St. Louis. So you he was the mentor for you. He was. He was uh, he, in a not like a, in a in a way where he put his arm around me and kid this is what you're going to do and this is how you're going to do it and this is how you get to the major leagues. It was just because of his presence and I knew what he had done. And, and he's just a sweetheart of a guy. I mean, just a great guy. And I just saw him actually uh, last weekend back in Fulton, Missouri, where we where I grew up and my family grew up. Um, 
and so uh, I still stay in touch with him. And he's uh, he was just just because of the great guy, a great character guy, great family guy that he was. That I uh, looked to him for some guidance, I guess, outside of my own father. So if your father wasn't into sports, then I'm guessing, is this coach responsible for getting you into sports? Or I mean, how did you start playing no, was Little already, League and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, I was already yeah. playing because of all my friends. Okay. And I was also fortunate that when I was growing up, my one of my best friends growing up, his dad was a college coach who was the coach where my dad taught. Got so it. we were, that's how our, we kind of bonded that way. And then um, so I was always under some really good coaches. I, I feel like I learned the fundamentals of the sports that I played really well. Uh, unfortunately, I just didn't have the talent to take it any <laughs> farther than that, really. What was the one skill that you were really, really good at that you were better than anyone else? Oh, I don't know about that. Or, I was always a good. I was always a good bunter because that was oh, actually yeah? emphasized. Uh, and I know that's almost because I, it's funny. Every coach that I had. Now that I think about it, bunting was such a big deal, uh-huh. and I, you know, no one bunts anymore. No one you're, knows how you're to. You're a righty though. Uh, I, I was a switch hitter actually. Whoa. Yeah, I, it was like self-taught switch hitting. So was it drag bunting or just both? Nice. Both. Yeah, so that's uh, that was the one thing I guess I could do better than, or not better, but. And were you fast? Could you take off to first? I mean, that was. I had actually had pretty decent wheels. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. the whole part of it, right? I mean, right. you can get the the bunning down, but if you don't. Well, I think the whole part is advancing the runner, but if you could get on base right. too, that's. No, of course, but if you gotta, you gotta get well, it. That's towards, the thing. The drag bun third. is definitely. I I still don't understand why more major leaguers don't drag bunt. I mean, you could probably go teach the Mets how to bunt right now. <laughs> It's probably more difficult, though, to drag bunt with the ball coming in at a speed like that, oh, though, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. But I would think like a guy like Billy Hamilton, you know, D. Gordon. Those guys would do a little bit. But no one wants to – no one gets the big contract because they bunt their way on base, right? right? It's about hitting home runs or slashing line drives into the gap. Did you hit any home runs? I hit uh, – high school and college combined, I hit four home runs. Wow. Two in high school – two in college and the crazy thing about the college home runs I hit in consecutive at bats but two different games the last at bat of one game and then two days later we played another game and I hit uh on like the first pitch of the game whoa Uh, so you were like riding the high from the first home run your confidence level was through the roof you know the crazy thing is is that that second home run I didn't think I hit I thought it popped up to center field, and I was mad. I threw the bat down. I mean, <laughs> today it would be like a bat flip, you know. I threw the bat down because I was mad. I thought that I popped it up, and the ball cleared the fence, which was about, and I still don't know how it went this far, about 400 feet to center. It, there's the ditch, a street, a road, and then another ditch, and it landed in the ditch over the road. Wow. And the catcher, when I came back up the next time, said, I had no idea you could hit the ball that far. I said, neither did I. And then I struck out on three straight curveballs. <laughs> well, that's your – so is that your glory story when you when you look back on your athletic days? Is your well, home I struck run? out on three straight curveballs? No, no, the, no, the, the home run. Uh, yeah. yeah, cranking them out. No, I, I don't – honestly, I don't, I'm trying to figure out. I, I don't know what my glory story would be. Uh, Any punt returns? No punt touchdowns. returns. No punt returns. I, I scored touchdowns. I think uh, in high school – I caught like 10 or 12 passes total, and I think six or seven were for touchdowns. Wow. So, so you were targeted low. in the red zone, huh? You know what? It's just a weird thing. It was, it was we passed like, we didn't have to pass because um, 
I had a guy in high school in my class, a guy by the name of Herbert Junebug Johnson. That was his <laughs> name. He was all state in football, all state in basketball, and he won. He sing almost single handedly won the state championship in track for my high school because he won the 100, 200, 400, and the long jump. And his long jump, Whoa. all four were state records at the time in Missouri when he did it. The 100 just got broken this past spring, wow. and his long jump record still stands. His long jump was, for a high school kid, 24 feet, 9 inches, and I think it had 9 and a half inches, which is a phenomenal That's distance. Did there he are go college kids who can't jump there. Uh, he went to the University of Missouri, played football. He was a big 8, all big 8 wide receiver. This is before the big 12. Uh -huh. And then he, um, he played with the Bears during a strike year. Okay. And uh, and that was it. The replacements, and I, huh? And I, yeah, he really was. And and that was always the lesson for me. And and I always – first of all, he was the best high school athlete I had ever seen and still to this day covering sports. You know, I used to work in D.C. And, you know, you're familiar with the Washington, D.C. area, the, the great athletes that come out of that area. Yeah. I still haven't seen an all-around high school athlete that matches Junebug. Wow. It's pretty impressive. And I covered a lot of good ones there in D.C. Who did you idolize uh, growing up in terms of, you know, either in the sports that you played or in other sports that you watched? Yeah, um, I guess probably Cardinals players. More like uh, guys like Lou Brock and Bob Gibson. Bake McBride was actually from my hometown. Nice. I don't know if you guys – Bake McBride – his name came up uh, recently with all the Afro talk with the guys that had the really big Afros. And remember the baseball cards from the 1970s? He and Oscar Gamble <laughs> used to wear the baseball caps and the, the big – it looked like Mickey Mouse ears because yeah. <laughs> the Afros would come out from out from underneath the, the cap over to the side of the head. Uh, my, and my dad was actually his advisor at Westminster College. Here's the, here's the crazy story. Okay. okay. I was on a college campus for parts of 10 years. Wow. Graduate from high school, I go two years undergrad at the University of Missouri. I went to go walk on. I was invited to walk on. I got hurt, then got cut. What, what was your injury? Uh, I ran into an outfield wall during a scrimmage, going after a fly ball, trying to impress the coaches. And the outfield wall, it's wooden wall, but it came out at the bullpen, and then it, it kind of jutted back toward the the outfield wall uh -huh. so this is the side wall. I was playing right field okay so this is the the wall on the side and for the bullpen it jutted back and so as I'm looking as I'm tracking the ball and checking the wall I'm looking down and the, there seems to be plenty of room but what I didn't realize was at that point that's where the wall comes back and I Yikes. hit that wall head first uh -huh. full speed Ugh. and I was knocked out cold no I was knocked out cold they said for several minutes and I had to go to the hospital I went to the emergency room um, and they said for a couple minutes there, they thought I was dead. Wow. Um, and then that was the injury, and then the, they basically, I got cut after that. And then, um, so I had two years there at the University of Missouri where I was just a student, you know, doing whatever any other kid does. But I started missing baseball, mm -hmm. and I decided I would go to Westminster. I transferred to Westminster College where my dad was a teacher, professor. And so I went there, and I spent three years there. Then I went to law school for two years. Oh, my goodness. Then I went to journalism school for two years. So I got my master's degree there. So after all that, I was parts of 10 years, nine academic years that spanned 10 years. So when you went to the college where your dad taught and played baseball there, were your, did you still have hopes of playing in the majors, and was your career still geared towards being uh, a professional athlete? No, I mean, I kind of knew at that point. 
All right, this was just for fun. Okay. This was pretty much for fun. I'm, we had some scouts come through or in the area, but uh, yeah, it was. I was pretty realistic at that point. The dream was over, but I still loved playing ball, and I had so many friends from that team and from that time, and I still stay in touch with all of them. So um, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it was. It was. It was one of the best parts of my life. Those three years there were, were fantastic. So at what point do you turn your attention to journalism then? So coming out of college, I was accepted to both the University of Missouri Journalism School and the law school. And my parents convinced me, even though I was thinking journalism, <laughs> my parents convinced me that, you know, maybe you should go to law school where there's a little bit of a safety net. You can use a law degree in so many ways. But I had no interest in being a lawyer. Okay, so, so this is the parents' push, right? Yeah. So I said, "All right, all right, you're paying for it, so I'll do it." And I could not have been more miserable. Those two years, I told you, those three years at Westminster, finishing up my undergrad, were three of my favorite years. Those next two years were two of the most wow. miserable years of my life. But it taught me so much. Number one, I, I made a lot of good friends to this day, and I can get pretty much free legal advice. I can, <laughs> I can speed dial a bunch of guys and get legal advice or actual you know, legal help on things. You know, I've, I've had a lot of guys, hey, uh, by the way, can you help me out with this form here? And, <laughs> right. All right, yeah, I'll email you something here at the end of the day. Um, but I had that, and it taught me something else. It taught me that I've got to do things for me. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you can't do everything for yourself, but you have to be happy. And I just could not think that I would be happy being going to law school. And, and there's three years of law school. After two years, most people just stick it out for the third year anyway because right. it's the easiest of the three years of law school. But my thinking was if I go and do the third year of law school, then I'm going to have to take the bar exam. Then I'm going to have to get a job and go down this path that I didn't want to go down. And I remember having a conversation. I was clerking for a law firm, and I met with about 15 of the attorneys to tell them. I was really kind of scared to tell them what I was thinking because I was thinking they were going to say, get out. I can't believe you're doing this, you know. But to a person, they told me, go do this now. You're not married. Um, you're, you're young enough, and if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, then you can come back to the law. It's not, you know, still going to be here for you. Right. And it was really, it made me feel so good after this series of interview or, or discussions that I had with all of these attorneys. They, you know, some of them were telling me, oh, I had a chance to go tour with a rock band that, you know, a bunch of us put together, and we were going to go do college towns and things like that, and, and, uh, another guy said uh, he had a chance to go to Europe and do some stuff and, and all these other stories. It was funny because I got to know these attorneys like I, I didn't know them. And they were so revealing, and it just made me think, you know what, I've got to do this. So I went, and, and fortunately the University of Missouri Law, uh, Journalism School was just down the street and has a really good reputation, and, and I was able to get in and started taking some classes. and, and um, uh, it just, It's just been amazing. I have to say that that was like the start of where things – in my journalism career have fallen into place like I can't believe it. People ask me, well, how did you do this? And what can I do? And I said, really, I'm not the right person to ask. <laughs> I've just been fortunate and things have like doors have magically opened. Um, whenever I needed it to open, it did. And I don't know 
how to explain it other than to say that I'm just extremely blessed and fortunate that well you're good at what you do that happens too that that helps for sure look but there's a lot of good people of course all over this country I worked with people in Missouri who could have easily worked at ESPN and for whatever reason it just didn't happen some of them and and in some cases too it was personal choice they decided they wanted to stay there because of family and and things like that but um, so you sat down and you talked to the attorneys about leaving law school, and that conversation ended up going okay. What about the conversation with your parents that you're leaving <laughs> law school? Yeah, that was that was a little school? bit more difficult. Yeah, um, th- that took some convincing. And I'll tell you this: obviously, they just kind of said, "All right, well, if that's really what you want to do. All right, go try it." And I kind of told them what the attorneys said: "Hey, if it doesn't work out, you can go back to law." I have some professional so I think sources, they, yeah. So, to yeah, back so me up I on this, Mom. think <laughs> that's what helped convince them. Not convince them, but they already knew that I, my decision had been made. It was just, you know, I wanted to have their blessing. Right. And they kind of gave it to me. My dad was my dad was great about it. My mom was like, okay, all right, well, you know. I think she held out hope that I would always go back to the law. And to that point, so I do, I think, my second sports center. And the next morning, my mom calls me. And she was like, yeah, I saw your show last night. She goes, yeah, you uh, th- th- you did a nice job. Uh, by the way, don't wear that tie again. <laughs> and two, have you ever thought about going back to law school? And I'm like, Mom, I just did SportsCenter. I just did, you know, no, this is what I want to do. And she was like, no, no, I thought you wanted to go back to law school. I thought this was going to be a little thing that you were going to do, have some fun, and then go back and get a real job. Oh, that's you so know, funny. and so I was like, Okay, well, you know, I'm not saying I won't go back to law school, but I'm kind of like, doing well right now. You're like, thanks for the advice on the tie. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll yeah, take that exactly. into consideration. Oh, oh, thanks, was, Mom. She, <laughs> she used to email me all the time and text mess, text, me, text message me. About your outfits. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, that shirt and tie don't go together. You know? <laughs> and I was usually pretty good about it. And there were times, it's, it's weird, and I'm sure you've seen this too, where it looks good in front of the mirror. Of course. But on camera colors get distorted or patterns get distorted yeah and all of a sudden like yeah what are you doing wearing that starts jumping around mm-hmm. and yeah and then people start noticing it something that you wouldn't have noticed before okay so from let's uh we're gonna get to espn in a little bit from going to the um university of missouri and getting your master's in journalism mm-hmm. you go to news channel 8 correct in virginia right it's in springfield virginia greater dc area and how did that job come up uh this was going back to the perfect timing thing where i Came out of school, and I had applied for jobs all over the country at small markets, thinking I had the mentality of like a minor league baseball player. Go to these small markets, you know, learn the craft, hone your skills, move up markets. Because that's what you're taught in journalism school. People tell you you have to work holidays. You're not going to make any money. You have to go to all the small markets. And the people who are left after those scary conversations are the ones that you know at least are – going to be willing to try to do it in this business That's right. and you know they at least will, will try and get a start but and you were one of those people who well, accepted that mentality absolutely yeah and i applied for jobs in peoria illinois lynchburg virginia <laughs> jackson mississippi uh the quad cities in iowa all of these places where i apply for jobs where i thought oh I can, okay i think i'm ready for this i, I didn't know but I started getting feedback from some people who were already there who were other Mizzou alums. And I, I, I would contact them and find out what's, you know, why why wasn't I uh, up for that job? And a couple of times I actually got some people to tell me, well, they don't think that you can play there. 
And I was like, oh, you don't, they don't think I'm good enough? Like, no, there are no Asians in that market, and they don't believe that you might be accepted by the viewers. And that was really what stunned me as, you know, in my mid-20s, here I am coming out of school and trying to get a job, and I'm, I'm getting that thrown in my face. It's really the first time that I'd ever faced anything like that. Just In your whole life? Right, in my face. Uh, now, there have been some moments. Look, I grew up as part of the only Asian family in a rural mid-Missouri town, but there was a uh, Korean community there, no? A uh, couple, yeah, about a half hour away. Okay. But but yeah, so but being an athlete actually helped me uh-huh. kind of show everybody, hey, I'm just like you. I, I have the same interests as you, and 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 it actually was pretty smooth. So my my um, whatever encounters or incidents I had were pretty minimal, surprisingly in in Central Missouri. Uh huh. But I was really stunned on a on a professional basis wow. to hear that news directors. And whoever uh, hired would throw that in my face. Uh, not directly, but... Through, well, that was their through, feedback. Right. That was yeah. what I was hearing. And I'm thinking, wow, then maybe I'm not cut out for this business. Not because I didn't think I was good enough or whatever. I just... How can you work if you're not going to get the opportunity to work? Right. So um, I had that idea that I was going to do that. And, and this is something that, uh, especially if you're trying to get into the business, if all of, any of your listeners of your podcast here are trying to get into the business, yeah, they one love, thing that they I, I always advice. tell people is go out and, you know, don't just send the reel out there and the resume out blindly. Sometimes that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. But if you have the opportunity to go out and, like, drive to that station, if you take that step, Almost always, that person on the other side will say, "Yeah, if you're going to do that, I'll, I'll I'll meet with you for five minutes." Right. It still may not materialize into a job, but at least you have a chance to show who you are, and and it's just not some piece of paper that says, you know, Alexa Dat and has your resume. Right. Because that doesn't separate you from anyone else. Right. Yeah. Right. So now that was part of my plan. I had decided um, I was going to my first Asian American Journalist Association National Convention, and that was a big organization. So, did you feel like you were you wanted to become part of this organization because you had gotten you know feedback from people saying you might not be accepted in certain markets, or was there a connection no, there? Or no. you just <laughs> you know, quite honestly, I didn't even know I didn't know anything about this organization until about two weeks before I took this trip out there. Okay, how'd I you hear about it? Through a, a professor at the University of Missouri. Okay. And I thought, oh, that sounds kind of cool. And then he said, well, the national convention is in, looks like he he's not Asian. He just knew about the organization. He saw it. And he said, yeah, maybe you can meet some people. Maybe you can network out there. Uh-huh. And it was out in Seattle. So here I am in Columbia, Missouri, and this is what I did. I had the convention one week at the beginning of one week, and then I had a wedding to attend for a friend in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at the end of the next week. So for Two weeks You're there. so Midwestern, I can't take it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have no idea where any of these places are that you're talking about. I mean, about. I know where Seattle is, but you keep throwing out like <laughs> all right, other places. All right, so, <laughs> so then, then you'll really appreciate this, or maybe not appreciate this. So I go from Columbia, Missouri. I drive all the way through uh, I-70 that goes all the way out of Missouri into Kansas, through Kansas to Denver. I spend my first night in Denver at a high school friend, a classmate that I grew up with, another son of a Westminster College professor who was living in Denver. Uh I crash on his couch for one night. Get up. I drive to Ogden, Utah, and I stop there, and then I had – oh, I stopped there because – I think it was the next interview I had was Kennewick, Washington, and I had to kind of time it. And I decided, oh, all right, I'll just go to, I'll, I can get to Utah, no problem, 
and then I'll drive to Kennewick, Washington, which is in the southeast corner of the state. Oh my gosh, I, you're like in the truckster with yeah, going to oh visit man. Cousin Eddie. What are, you, what are you driving in it too when you're going? This, yeah, this is, is my this? parents' Volvo. <laughs> oh my so it's like, a, it's like a Volvo sedan. You're okay? literally out of vacation. I know, I know. So oh, I've got. A, this is so funny because I've got like two suitcases of suits and shirts and clothes and I have a box full of uh, resume tapes. At that time, it was tapes still. You know, you still had to edit your tapes. You don't have a dead ant on the roof, do you? No, no. Uh, and so... Yeah, I'm, I'm picking up uh, who knows uh, Randy Quaid along the way or something. <laughs> I uh, so I go to Kennewick, Washington. I have my first interview, and I walk into this station, and it is so small. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, but there's a job opening. And and the reason why I'm sharing this story in part is for anybody out there who wants to get a job. Where going and having a face-to-face meeting helps is twofold. One, they get to see you. Two, you get to see how news directors or people who hire look at you and look at stuff that you do. Mm-hmm. Like in that case, the tape machine goes in and she starts watching the tape and she starts talking and asking me questions about the tape. And she pops the tape out in about a minute. Yeah. And I've got like 12 minutes worth of tape and I'm thinking, wow, she really wasn't impressed. She pops the tape out and she said to me, I'm really sorry that you came all the way out here for this interview. I, mean, I should have told you, and I, I just kind of didn't, I don't know, she, she came up with some excuse. And she said, I actually gave this job away two days ago. No. And then she said, we had so many people apply for this job, I never got around to seeing your tape. But had I seen your tape, I would have hired you on the spot. Whoa. So that was kind of nice to hear. At the same time, I'm like, uh, yeah, but that doesn't do me any Damn good. It. I drove all the way out here to Kennewick, <laughs> Washington. Now, that wasn't my only stop. But it taught me these news directors, they get that's where they get bombarded with so many tapes. Any job opening, right? There's right. so many people. Think about every semester, a class of kids from all over the country are coming out trying to be the next whatever it is, whether it be anchor, producer, videographer, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, A whole new group of people are joining the job market, so that makes it tougher. So you got to go out there and separate yourself as best as you can, and that's one way. I ended up going to Seattle for the convention, made some great contacts, and to this day I still have friends from the from that first convention that I went to. And then I drove down the coast, and thanks to some professors at the University of Missouri, they had contacts, and they told me, all right, we mapped it out together. So I go down to Eugene, Oregon, Springfield, Eugene, Oregon. Uh-huh. I stopped there. I met with a news director there, not for a job, but just as a to get some advice, look at the tape and get a critique. Mm-hmm. So – he, I remember he, he gave me some great advice. Went down to Santa Rosa, California. Went to San Francisco. Went to L.A. Went to Phoenix because I had a buddy. What is, what's some of the Phoenix. advice as you're going to these different places? What's some of the advice they're giving you? Uh, they're telling me, obviously, things like, see, I'm coming out of college at the time. Now, right. Keep in mind. So of course. They're, but they're telling me things like how to stand, how to do stand-ups, what to say in the stand-ups, how to tighten your writing, very active writing. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things. Be very active. Use active verbs and try to punch that language so that it really brings to life what what you're saying with the video that you show and make sure that the video matches up to the words. Got it. Um, Things like that. And then part of it is just straight presentation. Okay. Um, Slow down. Don't mumble. You know, try not to get too jargony. Because um, for a local newscast, you have to appeal to a wide range. It's not just sportscast. Right. Uh, it's a little bit different at ESPN or 120 Sports. 
typically it's really just the diehard sports fans who are tuning in, right? Yeah. So you have to change that up. Um, but okay, so you're uh, on the, the response was pretty positive. So you're on this trip, and then yeah. do you end up landing somewhere where someone has? Well, a, here's here's the deal. Gig? Okay, so then I finally get to Las Vegas. Okay. Uh, I went to Phoenix, and then get to Las Vegas, and there was that was the second of the two interviews on this entire trip over the two weeks, and. I meet the news director, he sees my tape, and he says kind of the same thing as the Kennewick, Washington news director, and he says at the end, there was this box, I'm trying to see something in here, I can't, if, imagine, it was probably a box that had um, like paper towels, that used to probably carry paper towels from a, like a local store, you know, yeah. so it was, it was a pretty big box, this box had tapes overflowing, like he had it on the ground around the box, and it was, and he says to me, he goes, See that box over there? Was, that's from everybody around the country trying to get the job that you're in here interviewing for. I'm like, wow. I'm thinking to myself, that's a lot of tapes. Yeah. He said, see this tape stack over here? And right behind his desk, there was a stack of about eight to ten tapes. Mm-hmm. He said, those are the people who I think are good enough for this job based on what I saw out of that box. Wow. And then he grabs my tape and he puts it to the top of the stack. He goes, now you're on the top of that stack. Wow. And I was like, whoa, all right. He said, I'm going to give you the job in about two months when the contract of that guy who has the job currently runs out. Uh-huh. So stay in touch. You got all my Don't information. Don't tell him. <laughs> yeah, he was like, I was so excited. I get out and I drive and I call my mom and dad to tell them I think I got a job. And I told them what happened. And my dad then said all of a sudden, Oh, by the way, some guy named Wayne Lynch in Washington, D.C. called and wanted you to call him back, and here's his number. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Ooh. This is the guy from News Channel 8 in yeah. Washington, D.C. I did my f- interview over the phone as I'm driving through New Mexico. Wow. And I can hear him <laughs> playing my tape in the background, <laughs> and, uh, and he's asking me all these questions. And then he just said, all right, when can you be here? I'm like, wow. What? And uh, so that's how I got to D.C. But that's that, you know, so I tell the story about going out and trying to meet people and then something like that happens. It's kind of kind of funky. And whatever happened with the Vegas deal? Well, I called him back. I called the guy back and he said, no, absolutely. You should take that. You're like, psych. (laughs) You got got to D.C. by going to the exact opposite. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Well, you know, well, the funny thing is, is based on the feedback I was getting from like Lynchburg, Virginia was. I may not play out there. I figured, well, there's a lot more Asians out on the West Coast, so maybe I need to hit those markets and introduce myself to the news directors out there. That was my game plan. Isn't it funny how people who are just so short-sighted can end up changing your perspective on something? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, but I'm glad... I'm glad I knew that. I'm glad I took that trip. I went to every state except for, what, Montana and the Dakotas, I think... Montana and the Dakotas I hear and Nebraska. The Dakotas are beautiful this time of year. Uh, uh, you know about the Dakotas. West of the Mississippi <laughs> and Minnesota and Iowa, I guess. But just that little pocket right there were the only states that I did not actually drive through at any portion of that trip. It was crazy, but but uh, a lot of miles on that car. Sorry, I think I just bored everybody. To t- no, that's an awesome story. Well, but I ended up going to DC. That's, that's what our audience is. That our audience is is a lot of sports fans and a lot of people who are big fans of the business and like hearing stories exactly like that about people, you know. In the grind and, well, and trying to figure it out. Well, there's also where I tell people, look, don't let somebody tell you you can't or tell you no. If you really want it, somebody, just keep working. And I think even if they tell you no and you just say, look, I'll work for free. I'll just do something just to show you that I can do it. Now, you mm-hmm. can't do that, obviously, for a long time. 
But sometimes they just need to see, wow, this person is really motivated and committed to being in this industry. And, and you'll be surprised at how many doors can open like that. So after you spend your entire life in Missouri, <laughs> right? Up to that point, yes. Up to that point, you then move to Washington, D.C., right. essentially. Virginia, but right. we'll call it D.C. I was living in Arlington. Arlington, so here, okay. Here's my – here's – so I still remember. I got paid – I think my paychecks every two weeks were approximately $600 a paycheck, okay? So my rent – in Arlington, Virginia, was six sixty. Whoa! So, with the help of per month, six sixty per month at that time, uh, my parents helped me out get things going. But what I would have to do was one check basically was the rent, rent. check, yeah, but not still couldn't cover the entire rent, right? So I had to get, get a couple a month or two to just kind of get things going. So I had something in the coffers, and. I would take just a little bit off each month. And, of course, you know, you're living in D.C. and there's just so many things to do. And it was frustrating because... You're broke. You know, yeah, you're broke. And, <laughs> and fortunately, the Smithsonian was free and things like that. You know, I can go walk around the mall for free. But That's a good thing about D.C. museums. They don't yeah. have this suggested entrance fee. Yeah. It's which still is what, suggested here. You don't have to give any. I know, but almost everyone does unless well, you just don't have the means. paying with our Tax yeah. dollars, right? I mean, technically, if you were in his situation here in New York, he could still go into the museums and it wouldn't be a big deal. Of course, but the there's there's like a unwritten code that almost everyone pays for museums in New York, especially if you have the money. But in D.C., we, we it's free, man. Yeah. Lucky you guys, I guess. <laughs> totally. Well, lucky for you because you didn't have any money, so or yeah. money to spend on extra stuff. Yeah, but did it, you end up getting to explore and, and enjoy D.C.? Oh, I love D.C. I lived there five years, and, man, nobody knew where to How go for press teams, box foods ben, did you, than uh, I did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll go there. I'll go out to the Orioles game. Sure, they serve crab cakes there, so I'll go out there. I'll cover it. Yeah, it's the sixth day. I know. It's all right. I'll do it. <laughs> I need to eat lunch and dinner. Was the transition tough for you from Missouri to Arlington, uh, Virginia? Not really. Not no? really. Uh, I had some experience. I had some experience there. Because I had served as a as an intern on Capitol Hill for one summer, okay. So I was uh, during my college years, so I, I was a little familiar with D.C. My sister was living there, okay. And she lived there and, and was working on Capitol Hill as well. So uh, we uh, we didn't really see a lot of each other just because of our schedules, but um, at least there were there was someone else there. Yeah, you know, if I needed. Needed uh, help Security or, or questions or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then that was, I think that was nice for my parents that they could kill two birds with one stone when they Absolutely. came Absolutely. Yeah. That's like um, when my brother moved to New York because we were here. My parents were like, okay, <laughs> we get it. That's yeah. totally fine. You have somebody there in case you get in trouble. What was the actual job at, in Arlington? Uh, News at, at News Channel 8, um, I worked as a, on any given day, I could be an anchor, a reporter, a producer, an editor, or a photographer. Whoa. I, I had to do all of those for the local market there, and um, it was it was just a great experience. And I was there at a time when George Michael and Glenn Brenner That's were the two, machine. yeah, they were the <laughs> two uh, kings of local TV, and and the guys who ran through there, and and I would would see out on shoots were like James Brown, Gus Johnson was a weekend anchor like I was, Chris McKendry was the weekend anchor at Channel Seven. Um, 
David Aldridge, who just got awarded the Kurt Gowdy Media Award at the Basketball Hall of Fame, he was a beat writer for the Washington Post, yeah. covering both the Redskins and the Bullets slash Wizards. <laughs> you know, Tony and Mike, uh, they were colonists for the Washington Post. I mean, that, that's how that, I grew that, up knowing them. Yeah, local, yeah, that local people, the local readers of the Post knew, but... Nobody knew them as television personalities like they do now. Did you happen to read when Wilbon retired from the Post? He wrote a story to his son, essentially, saying that he wanted his son to remember him as a columnist from the Post, not as a talking head on mm. ESPN. And right. it was really interesting. He was like, this was such a huge part of my life, and I'm retiring, but my son son is young. I want him to really be able to you know, um, understand that this was a huge part of my life and right. is who I, you know, this is who I define hey, myself look, as. It's a big deal. Yeah. To this day, to be a columnist for the Washington of Post, course. whether it's news or sports, whatever. And those guys were two of the big guys there at that newspaper. From News Channel 8, you get the call to go to ESPN, and you're part of this group of uh, anchors who are starting up ESPN News. Right. Did you feel like you had made it once you got there? You're at the pinnacle. You're at ESPN. This is it? Right. Well, to some degree, I did. I felt you know, happy and proud that I've join this uh, exclusive club but at the same time i think what was your I reaction knew. when you got the call was there like a moment oh yeah I, I i remember i remember my like draft agent, day <laughs> my agent called me and said i got the call they've offered you the job and i'm like well, i don't remember exactly how i reacted but i know i was thrilled <laughs> and then he said all right these are the numbers we're going to try to get them up. And I said, don't do anything <laughs> that would make them say no. You know, I said, I said, all right, if you think that's – I mean, I was really like, I think I'm good with what they offered. Yeah. But he's like, no, no, I think we can get some more. And, and I'm going to go do my agent thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, don't, you know, blank this up. <laughs> Let's – I'm good with where it is right now. But if you think you can get some more, then that's fine. But – but don't get them mad. You know, of course, I didn't know that that's all part of the game. And, you know, negotiate. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and I'm glad he did go back because we did end up getting a little bit more. But, you know, that at that point, it wasn't about the money. Okay. You know, it was about being a part of ESPN. So I went there and I worked uh, uh, with this great group of people who are still friends. And we uh, worked some long hours, some crazy hours, have some. Crazy stories to tell from those times together. And then, uh, yeah, I thought I was going to be a lifer. I thought I was going to be there uh, after certainly going into my 17th year. I had no reason to believe that I would not at least work, say, another three to five more years there. Yeah. And then 120 Sports came calling, and they offered an opportunity that I realized fairly quickly that uh, – this was something that I couldn't pass on. What was so enticing about it for you, you well, to leave ESPN? They called me, I think, they called my agent, and I think twice my agent said, no, he's not interested. This, the timing's not right. Right. And then the third time they called and said, this is the last time, but we want him to fly out to Chicago. We want to meet him. We want him to meet us. And for us to be able to tell him everything that we have so that he can make an informed decision. Hmm. So... My agent, Seth Meyeri, said, look, just get them off my Seth back. Seth Meyeri's your agent? He's my agent. That's awesome. He I said, like him a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah I met guy. with him when I was looking for agents. He's a great guy. Yeah, so he's a great he said, guy. He said, just get them off my back. <laughs> Go out there. Let them down easy, and then hang out with your buddies in Chicago. You uh -huh. know, they're going to they're gonna pay for your way out there, so hang out there and, and you know, enjoy the time out there. 
I said, all right, all right. So they give me the itinerary. I get this itinerary, and it says 122 North Aberdeen, and they have a little schedule of what I'm going to be doing that day. All right, which was going to be only about, say, three or four hours. I mm-hmm. think it was going to be several meetings and then lunch, and then I was free to go. 122 North Aberdeen, you know, what does it mean to you? You're right. You don't know Chicago. You don't know what that means. I roll up the car, picks me up from the airport, takes me in. I think I'm like on my phone and I'm not paying attention to where we're going. And he said, all right, here we are. And I realized, wait a minute. This is the Oprah, says the Oprah Winfrey show. <laughs> Harpo Studios. What? Said, wow, Surprise, is, you're on so, Oprah. <laughs> so this is not like some garage with a green screen and, you know, uh, this is kind of like something you know i don't yeah. know what it is but it's something right uh-huh. okay so i said all right that's a good start i walk in and i meet some people and i ended up meeting some people and seeing some people that i actually knew from previous either jobs or interviews mm-hmm. and i remember just sitting in this studio it was a shell of a studio where the 120 sports studio is now where this great man cave slash bar studio exists now but there's nothing there but bricks and concrete and jason coyle is telling me all right this is what we can do and this is what um we're trying to do and this is how we see you being a part of this and then he said and we have major league baseball rights where we have live looking rights and we can show nhl highlights and we can show nba highlights and nascar and golf and 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 i said whoa whoa wait a minute what you have this capability? Because at that time, ESPN didn't even have that right. ability to have live-looking coverage yeah. of Major League That's Baseball. That's huge. It was huge then. It's huge now. And I thought, whoa, this is kind of serious, isn't it? So I started asking him some more questions. And then I have a buddy, Jim Flink, who's now at the University of Missouri. He's uh, with the new media department and teaches strategic communications. And he was part of a group that started Newsy. I don't know if you guys are aware of Newsy. Mm-hmm. And he was... He was there with Newsy at the time. So he knew about digital news and information and and knew it a lot better than I did. He gave me four questions to ask so I could sound prepared and and (laughs) whatever, maybe call some information from them based on these questions. And I've told people that, to me, at the time, these questions, I was asking in French and I was getting answers in Russian. <laughs> I didn't know what I was asking. I didn't know what the answer was. I was just writing down, though. I had this notepad, and to each question, I would scribble down what they would say as far as the answers. And I remember going back uh, after I returned to Connecticut, calling Jim. I said, all right, this is what they said to the questions you asked. And to each one, he said, whoa, they can do this? Uh-huh. I heard about stuff like this, but I didn't know that the technology had advanced to the point that you could do this. And that was basically his answer to all four of the questions, to their answers. Right. And I was like, wow, I think this is going to put me over the top because I already had a good feeling meeting the guys Mm -hmm. and then what they were telling me about the rights and their vision. And uh, I had decided then that – well, I had already decided, and Jim basically confirmed it for me that this plane is going to take off. The 120 sports plane is going to take off, and I didn't want to be left at the gate. Right. Watching this plane disappear into the horizon, thinking, I should have been on that plane. They gave me a first-class ticket to be on that plane, and I passed on it. So I didn't want to be in that situation. Hmm. So. And have you regretted it since? I haven't. 
I have. And this has been a phenomenal experience. I've learned so much about the business. I've learned so much about, um, well, really, it's, it's actually kind of been a, it's it, not a kind, it has been a test and a challenge to myself and my my own skills and, and, and some of the things um, that I don't know if I didn't know if I could do, and maybe I still don't know if I can do, uh, because this format is unlike anything else out there. Mm-hmm. It's, there's parts radio, like, like um, you know, as you know, it's kind of like a three-hour, it's almost like a three-hour radio show sometimes, mm-hmm. more than it is a TV show. Yep. But we're on camera, and we're doing things have have a rundown that's structured like a television show. Um, but it, it, it's fun. It's challenging. At times, it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm in way over my head. I, I, I've, sometimes I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. For as long as I've been in this business, almost every day there's something that pops up on this side of things that I have never experienced. Well, that's so, good because you so, obviously yeah. feel challenged, and no, that's the whole part about the business. Is. Um, let's go back to ESPN real quick. Your first day on air. <laughs> Who was that with, and uh, what were you talking Jason about? That was Jason Jackson. Okay. My first sports center was with Jason Jackson, and it was on a Saturday night. Back then, it was the 2 a.m. sports center, and I did uh, an hour-long sports center with Jason, and I remember very little about you li- blacked very out. <laughs> little about that night. Um, I here's here's a kind of a crazy thing, and I, I shared this story with Cal Rifkin, and this is why he actually was the inspiration for this idea that kind of went awry. Because I'll, as I'll tell you, I never have seen that show. You uh, never watched your show. I never watched that first show. Oh my gosh! Okay. okay. So so when Cal Rifkin, uh, at, years after he broke Lou Gehrig's record, the Iron Man record. He had. A, I heard an interview where he said that he had not seen tapes of that night, of that game, and of which that is crazy because you and I were both there, I and was it was there. an insane it was. night. It was. Okay. But he said, and what I always remembered is, I have such sharp visions and, and a memory in my head of what that night was from my perspective that I don't want that to be clouded by the television broadcast of that night. And when I do forget or when it's kind of faded, when those memories have faded, then I'll go back and watch the tapes of that game. Okay. Years later, sense. I remember that when I interviewed Cal, and he told me that he had seen, he had, yeah. he had seen the game. and he'd, Well, it's hard. He, he it, when know. you're in the business, it's hard to avoid it. Honestly, they play that video over right. a lot because it's just so good. <laughs> right. The one coming down off the board, 21-30, I mean, yeah. off the building, yeah. was phenomenal. Okay, so then, but you said so, you don't really remember. So, so here's the deal. So, yeah. so with that in mind, I thought, all right, I had a pretty good, strong memory of uh, in the in the days and weeks, months after that show, and I had the tape at my desk of of uh, of that show, so that when it was gonna fade, that I'm gonna pop it in and I was gonna watch it and I probably cringe because <laughs> it was like my first person. I'm like, oh, I can't believe that's what I said or that's what I look like. <laughs> and then one day. When I'm thinking, oh, I should go watch that tape. I think it's about time to watch that tape. I go look for the tape, and I can't find the tape. And they used to do these things at ESPN. They call them sweeps, where they would come through with carts and just, if they saw a show tape, they would, oh, mm-hmm. that belongs in the library. You know, you forgot to take it back. We're to cleaning the up library. here. Yeah. yeah. This place is a mess. Yeah. They took it back, I guess. I don't know how it disappeared from my desk, but it did. And then when I went to go check it out again, it was missing. 
So there is no video proof of my first show. So I'll never get to see that show. So now that my memory has faded on that night, I still have some some memories of it, but uh, not not quite the way I probably should. Your one uh, experience at ESPN that you told me about that I've told a couple people now, and they've been you know um, kind of mesmerized by your story is your story anchoring on 9/11. Yeah, I um, well I, I was living here in the city. My wife was working at Yahoo, and I remember seeing the twin towers from my apartment in Midtown at 8.25 that morning. And I remember thinking, wow, what a spectacular morning. Because that would be more or less uh, the, the barometer for me, if you will, just what kind of a day it was. If I could see, you know, some days you couldn't even see the towers because it was foggy or smoggy or cloudy or whatever. And then some days you could only see parts of it or whatever. That day, it was so spectacular, the sky as well as the buildings. And I remember thinking, wow, what a gorgeous morning this is. And then then I'm thinking, oh, man, I better get in the car and get up to Bristol. I got to get to work. And so, you know, moments after I got into my car, that's when all chaos broke, uh, you know. And, and as I'm driving up to Bristol, I'm listening to the radio, and midway to Bristol from Manhattan, came the realization we are under attack because I didn't realize what was going on and I'll never forget finally making my way into the newsroom at ESPN all of the monitors were on uh, the Twin Towers coverage and I saw the tower go down because I'd heard on the radio how a plane had hit a tower and it came down and I was picturing that it came hit in the middle of the building and then it just toppled over the top half toppled over or something like that. Right. That's the vision I had riding in my car listening to the radio reports. I had no idea the way it came down, you know, for lack of a better term, like a candle on turbo, just kind of the way it came down the way it did. Right. So I'm watching the monitor when I walk in and people are all glued to the TVs and I'm standing next to a New Yorker and she's just bawling. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, that's how the first tower went down. When then I realized in the corner of the monitor it said live. And it was the second tower that was coming down. Wow. And I was, and you could just hear the cries in our newsroom. And, and I, was just, I was just shocked and stunned. And, and I was also trying to get a hold of my wife. And all the signals, you know, cell phones and everything were down. And uh, it was one of the craziest, scariest couple of days, I think not only of my life, I'm sure many people here in New York probably felt the same way. I was actually I mean, locked you had to out. go on set? Uh, well, yeah. We, we, what, we, we were kind of like... It, they didn't have back then the full hours of coverage mm-hmm. of SportsCenter that they do now. The first SportsCenter actually then didn't go on until 6 o'clock. And it was ESPN News that launched at 4 o'clock that day. The first programming came out of Bristol that day was 4 o'clock for ESPN News. Matt Weiner and I believe we did a four o'clock Sports Center to highlight um, just all the basically run down. At that point, I don't know. I'm trying to remember. I believe I don't know if all the games of Major League Baseball were canceled. They probably were. Um, and then the question was the big talk was the NFL. Mm-hmm. Would the NFL um, play its games or or cancel that week? And so that that was the big story. Then that's where we were interviewing. 
I'm, I'm pretty sure it was must have been Chris Mortensen and Peter Gammons and all the reporters out in the field like that. So that that was just a crazy, crazy day there, being like the first on air on ESPN that day. And then um, coming back the next day, the story I always tell is I get, got back to Grand Central Station because I had to stay the night in Bristol mm-hmm. because they had blocked all traffic into New York and, and all shut down the trains. I um, I got into Grand Central. It was like five thirty, five o'clock, and I'm, I'm and I'm going down Fifth Avenue at five thirty on a was it I guess Wednesday was it a Wednesday afternoon I think the uh, only three vehicle I was on a bike because I had met my wife who had ridden her bike to her work. I'm riding a bike and there's a bus and a cab for miles on Fifth Avenue. And that's it. And that's all I see. Yeah. I turned down 43rd Street going down to our apartment and going through Times Square, and I heard a sound that I've never heard. Besides the light bulbs going around the, the signs there, I heard the and I heard these sounds like that, like thump, thump. And I'm like, what is that sound? And I look up, and I realized, because I had never heard it before, and I've never heard it since, the billboards back then flipped. Yeah. But... Over the course of a normal day, at, at almost any part of the day, you don't hear that sound, right? You do not hear mm. the billboards flipping. And now, now it's electronic, but back then, you couldn't even hear it in the middle of the day. But there were so few people in Times Square that day, that afternoon, you could actually hear it. Tell me a good let's, – let's talk about something a little lighter. I've got something ridiculous okay. in my research Uh-oh. building up to this. Looking on your Wikipedia page, Uh-oh. I'm doing a bunch of I've, reading just to get some. Okay, that may not be. they not be. Uh, the last entry I come across, okay. and I go, "This has to be fake," but I hope it is not fake. You now work for 120 Sports. Okay. In 2005, Kim joined the band The Fairfield Four, and he has sung with them at concerts <laughs> and on albums since. <laughs> Kim and The Fairfield what? Four performed the song "Lonesome Valley" in the "Oh Brother Where Art Thou" sequel movie "Soggy Bottom Boys <laughs> Eat Frankenstein" in 2008. This is now, real, by the way. Like this what? is actually real. This, this is on your Wikipedia. This is on page. your Wikipedia page. No and way. For the first yeah. three sentences, I'm like. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> then when it says the sequel movie, Soggy Bottom Boys Meet Frankenstein, I'm like, that's not a real movie. Do you have any idea See, what that is? this is proof. Number one, this is proof that I do not – I know people go to their Wikipedia page <laughs> to see what people write about them or what's even written in there. I can't even remember the last time I've been on my Wikipedia page. You, so we like using and Wikipedia. And it was because of something like that. Somebody else had put, put something so, in there. So this they, isn't the they, first time there's been something ridiculous on your they've Wikipedia encou- page. Yeah, somebody wrote something else. And, 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 you know, fortunately, knock on wood, and I probably jinxed it right there, it's been funny stuff like that. But I mean, no, that is. I, I, I was like, I oh don't my God, know. he's the lead singer in the band. Honestly, yeah, I don't even it. know what that all means. That's, that's, <laughs> like, that's like, remember when I said I was asking questions in French and getting answers in Russian? That's right there. You've never that. seen well, Oh Brother Where Art, though? You know, I've never seen that movie. I haven't it's seen it either. Weird, but we couldn't find the, the sequel. We were like, Paul I was like, where's right? the sequel? I don't right. understand it. So that's where I got the idea that I think it might confused. actually be fake. So I start Googling the movie. I'm like, this Very creative. Whoever did it, that's extremely creative. I appreciate the humor. All right, we're going to blow through these. These are one yeah. or two. So um, I'm, I'm going to fire off a couple of questions, and you guys each got to come up yeah, with the first Yeah, this is called thing gets, gets to Know Your head. Co-Host. Okay. All right. What makes for a good co-host, and or what are you looking for in your co-host? Uh, someone who is smart, someone who is quick, someone who can be funny but doesn't have to be funny, but more than anything, just has my back, can pick me up whenever 
I'm fumbling. If I'm throwing interceptions, then they can say, you know, it's okay. We're gonna we're gonna get the ball back and we're gonna go down score. Flex. Chemistry. Somebody who's a hard worker and someone who I think I would like to have a relationship with off the air also because I think it helps on air, you know, chemistry and how the show goes. What's something that you were asked to do for a show and you just flat out said no to? <laughs> uh, it actually was for it our open. <laughs> yeah, it happened with Alexa here just last week. One of our producers here who is uh, producing our open Welcome to New York segment. We went to Katz's Delicatessen. And, uh, good spot. Yeah. Delicious. Uh, and guess who was nominated to do the Meg Ryan scene inside <laughs> the middle of the restaurant? Not me. <laughs> yes. So I was like, nah, I don't think this is going to happen. And he started he kept eating the sandwich. He was on. like, Mm. Yeah, yeah, you know, I was awful. Mm. I was awful because I, I'm thinking the whole time, how do I get out of this? Yeah, what can I say or do? do, it. do it so, so, I, so I kind of started doing it, and I said, no, I can't do this. No, no, this is not going to happen. Flex? Um, maybe out at Mets, there was a situation where I was asked to talk about like a kitty giveaway or something, and I said, no, I want to. I'd rather have somebody else do it, and I talk about the. But sports you had no problem it. footing on that fisherman's bucket hat. You well, I know I was asked to do that, and I did it. I mean, I'm a good sport. I try yeah. and do as much as I can that they asked me to do. All right. So, uh, what's something that you guys were asked to do for a show that you thought was a bad idea, did it anyway, and turned out to be really good that worked well for you? Oh, there have been interviews. Um, I've been scheduled to do interviews, and I'm thinking, why are we doing this person? And for this particular reason, you go in there reluctantly, it's happened from time to time, and the person on the other end turns out to be just a fabulous interview. And um, Any examples? Uh, I, I will give one example here, and I'm probably, she, if she ends up hearing, she'll probably like be annoyed that I said this, but ultimately she'll appreciate, I think, what I'm saying here. Uh, when I was in Chicago, and this was with 120 Sports most recently, about uh, a month or so ago, we've been trying to get Elena Deladon from the Chicago Sky to come in studio, and mm -hmm. she has just not been cooperative in any way, shape, or form. And I don't know if it's the team, if it's her, if it's both, whatever. But the team did offer Imani Boyette, another player, a rookie out of the University of Texas. I didn't know anything about Imani Boyette, and I'm thinking – all right, they're, you know they're trying to throw us a little crumb or a bone, and I'm thinking I don't know if we want to do this interview. She could not have been more charming, more intelligent, funny, uh, witty. It just was it was just a great interview. And she had gone to Texas, and it was right after the Drake video where Drake went through the the Texas basketball facility. Uh -huh. You remember that? And all the girls were going crazy. The basketball players were going crazy. And yeah. it turns out that Imani is a huge Drake fan and she couldn't believe that she had left and that then Drake <laughs> had gone through the facility. So, no, it was a great interview. So, yep. Baseball night in New York at SNY. I was asked to play Santa, to put the Santa hat on and everything for one of our Christmas shows. And I had to give gifts away to some of the guests on our show. So I had to give a hot pink wrapped thong um, bathing suit. Speedo. Speedo. Yeah. Speedo. To Andy Martino. And the backstory is he essentially lost a bet and had to wear the Speedo down at spring training one year when he was down there. And he did. He wore it over his pants, but he fulfilled his end of the bargain. And so because it was always something we brought up on the show and laughed at him about, they decided that we should order it online, wrap it up, 
and give it to him live on the uh, air and see what his reaction was. And he could not have been a better sport about it. He was awesome. I thought it wouldn't have been a good idea because I thought my credibility would have been shot. But we ended up, you know, rolling with it and it was fun. So it worked out very well. Best fantasy football team name. Mine? Yeah. Well, I, it's the one that I always go with. Team Chemistry. Team Chemistry. That's not bad. Flex? The Osama Ben Roethlisberger's. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. We debated talking about that right. because uh, it's kind of offensive. <laughs> eh, it's not that offensive-ish, I guess. I don't know. Uh, deep dish or New York-style pizza? New Haven-style pizza. I'm putting that as a win for New York-style pizza. Deep New dish. New Haven-style pizza. Deep dish. What deep is wrong dish. with you? I had it for the first time when I was in Chicago visiting this guy. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, but it's not pizza. It's a pie that's just filled with stuff. Filled with pizza. I want pizza. <laughs> I want more pizza. I want to pick it up and go. And that's the best part about New York-style and New Haven-style pizza. It was delicious. What's the blessed... The What's the best playoffs in sports? Um, probably the Stanley Cup playoffs. Like it. Lex? NFL. Eh, I was told by that one. <laughs> <laughs> if you were given $10,000 in sports cash, meaning it's only usable for something related to sports, okay. how would you spend it? Um... I would donate it to a uh, some kind of organization for kids. Went went. <laughs> Did not expect that, Alexa. Um, I would take a week off and hit as many different sporting events as I could. Maybe a week total, I oh, guess, because so I couldn't all do it. Totally. Oh, definitely about me. I'm spending this ten thousand dollars. Shoots me down. So I would go to Super Bowls. <laughs> I would try and go to um, Grand Prix. I would go to. NBA Final, NBA Championship game. I, I would am go learning to more about my co-host. Stanley Cup. That's the whole point. Yeah, I would go to as many uh, awesome sporting events as I could live. Okay. What is your favorite day in the sporting calendar? Uh, well, it would probably be the day, the first week of April, typically, where you have the NCAA final, you have opening day, and it's the start of Masters week. Ooh, nice. Okay. Mine is that first uh that first weekend of march madness it's the best in, in in sports where you have all those crazy upsets uh buzzer beaters it's phenomenal it's just a full day of college basketball what is if you were to pull your ipod right now what song has the most plays <laughs> ipod or iPhone. Just oh, yeah, okay. Music playing. I, if you I were to play my iPhone. If you were to pull out your music playing device, <laughs> what song would have the most plays? Uh, let's see. Um, actually, I, I guess it might be U2 just because I can't seem to get U2. <laughs> all, I, my wife downloaded a U2 album on my phone, and it just like mysteriously pops up at the weirdest times. So it's probably that. Uh, the song that I've had on my phone forever is called One Train by ASAP Rocky, and I love it. Okay. Um, now, sticking with music, if you were a wrestler, what song would you come out to? Oh, man. Uh, I'm thinking, uh, do you have one? I do. You do? Well, okay. I think the the easy one, the first the one that came to my mind was Seven Nation Army, just because uh -oh. I love how the beat starts at the beginning of that song. Okay. Sounds like something like Def Leppard or... ACDC, right? Nice. I mean, something, something from... All right, something to pump you up. Yeah. And uh, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Anywhere where my wife and son will be with me. Oh. So I can live That's anywhere. cute. 
Uh, I would totally ditch my dog and my husband, <laughs> and I would go live. Uh, no, I'd bring them with me. I'd go to a desert island um, or New York. <laughs> Which you already live. Yeah. I love this place. All right. This are you ready to embarrass Michael Kim now? Yes. Your most embarrassing story. My most embarrassing story actually made some of the blogs. I'm surprised you didn't find it in your research. Uh, we did very know, little maybe, research. Maybe Kyle is a bad like, producer. We like it when you tell the okay. story. I don't want to come in having any notions. I want the All reaction right. to be right. I think he heart. did find this, by the way. I'm All curious right. as to this, what this is. Uh, on opening day, we had an organist inside the Sports Center studio. Kevin Connors and I were anchoring Sports Center. And whatever, you're going through your typical opening day highlights and things. And at the start of every show, we would cut away to this organist up in the upper deck, and he's playing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And I said, coming out of that, as the shot comes out, two shot, we're opening up another hour of Sports Center. And I said, uh, Take Me Out to the Ballpark, whatever, uh, buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. And I guess now, nobody, for the record, I didn't think I said it. Kevin didn't think I said it. Nobody on the floor thought I said it. Nobody in the control room thought I said it. Nobody thought I said anything wrong. And yet somebody clipped it off, and it made it sound like I said, um, buy me some penis and Cracker Jack. <laughs> so that went little mini viral on the blogs um, for, I don't know, a couple days there. And I'm like, all right, I can see how you might – Think that I said it, but I obviously just didn't enunciate as much as I should have. <laughs> so there's my embarrassing story on national television. But you didn't say it. Well. You kind of did. I kind of <laughs> did, but yeah. You said penis on national yeah. television. Oh, yes. <laughs> Buy me some penis and Cracker Jacks. How's that for an uh, They're going to take that audio and replace it uh, <laughs> with you, like when you're actually on camera. Oh, on believe camera me now, I make sure when it. I say that. Buy me some peanuts. <laughs> And Cracker Jack. Emphasize the P. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and it was an organist, not a pianist upstairs. <laughs> oh, awesome. Michael Kim, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, guys. This was Appreciate so fun. It. We're going to have you on again because I have so much more to oh, get to boy. and so many more stories that I would love you said to tell. You said I would only have to do this once. Mm. Well, I lied. Uh, that uh, you're, anytime, as you're getting to anytime. know me, you will learn that uh, I'm a big liar. She, she. she uh, I, I wouldn't persuasive. say. I wouldn't say. Yeah, let's go with persuasive. She's very good at saying one thing and then making you sort of just agree to do the other. That's right. Okay. I do that all the time with Kyle. Glad to do it. Thank you. Thank Kyle. you. Oh, uh, Thank people you. can find you. You're Michael Kim. Uh, I'm, yes, my name is Michael Kim. <laughs> at Michael Kim 120 on Twitter, Instagram. Don't try to follow me on Facebook. <laughs> All right, thank you, Kyle. Thank you, studio crew. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. And let's go get a snack.